school. Hello? Oh, okay. Great. Awesome. Okay, we're good. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Derek. Okay, cool. So, yeah, like Alex, like Alex said, um, <clears throat> yeah, we're taking a break from, from our regular series. Um, originally, uh, there was a gap in the schedule. Um, before uh, we were going to kick off uh, Judges, which is our next series, and Pastor Ray was going to be kicking us off, um, but he's on a trip right now, so you guys can still be keeping them in prayer. Um, it is hard traveling with an infant. Um, it has been done, but it is not easy. Um, so, so yeah, so so because of that gap in schedule, he kind of gave me this this kind of an empty week, and he gave me the opportunity to teach, and he. He said, you know, you can, you can teach on anything you want. Um, and it was perfect because I'm taking a class right now where I have to do a sermon on Psalms. And so how fitting, right? It was, it was just the ideal situation. And from the outset, I was actually set on Psalm 90. So for a long time, I was like, oh, man, I'm going to do Psalm 90. That's one of my favorites. It's the oldest psalm. The first psalm that, that was ever penned was penned by Moses, right? It's, um, yeah, there's, it's a timeless message, right? It's God is eternal, man is transitory. He's like grass that sprouts anew in the morning, and then by dusk he's gone. Um, and we finish our brief years like a sigh. And all those years, their pride is but labor and sorrow, and then we just pass away, we slip away. Right, and so God teaches us to number our days, and and I mean I, I love that psalm. It's such a rich uh, and I think fitting message. But but so we were chatting one week. Uh, it was after Derek preached on the eternal state. I was talking with Derek and Pastor Roger, and then I don't know how we got to it, but you know we started talking about you know Revelation 19 and, and the final judgment and. And, and then I just thought of Psalm 2. You know, God just impressed Psalm 2 on my heart. Um, so after Derek's compelling message on the eternal state and the day of the Lord, it's like, like yes, Psalm 2 is so fitting. Especially today, being that Palm Sunday is coming up and we're entering into Holy Week. Here we have Psalm 2. As Alex mentioned, it, it's messianic psalm, a royal psalm, right? And so it was without question. Tonight we're doing Psalm 2. Um, so this is a psalm about Christ, the Christ that was to come. Okay? It's a royal psalm, a messianic psalm. And this is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's, it's interesting. So to the early church, this was the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament. And you wonder, if this psalm was the most significant psalm to the early church, 
and to the apostles. Do you think it should be the most significant psalm for you? As those who have bowed your allegiance to the king above all kings. And you who have the regal privilege to call God your father. Right? So with that in view, let's, let's pray and ask our great and mighty father for his guidance now. <clears throat> God, you had a plan from before eternity. Not only to raise up a people for yourself, but to magnify your son, God. And God, as you guide us now through this text, you lead us with your spirit and your wisdom. And may your words come off these pages in power as we behold the wonder and the mystery and the glory of the Son of God from eternity past and into eternity future. So we ask all these things in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so from the outset, we've uh, actually, let, let's read the text again. Thanks Alex for reading it, but I'd like to read it again. Just kind of immerse ourselves in this psalm. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So from the outset, who is this psalmist? Who do you think? Who do you think is the writer of this psalm? It's David. If you guess David, it's, it's a pretty fair guess. He wrote most of these. Um, and so actually we get that from uh, Acts chapter 4. We don't have to turn there, at least not now. Um, but the, the New Testament kind of enlightens us in that. So this, the writer here, the psalms, was David. Now, who is the Lord's anointed? Who is that referring to? Right? Kind of a trick question. So you know there's a near sense here and a distant, 
far ultimate sense that's being conveyed here, right? So in the near sense, the near fulfillment, this Lord's anointed was the king of Israel, right? It was David, or then Solomon, and the line of Davidic kings. And this psalm was actually read at the coronation of each of these kings in the Davidic line. So in a sense, all of these kings, these Davidic kings were given the title as God's anointed, right? When uh, uh, David confronted Saul, he even considered Saul the Lord's anointed, right? The Lord's God's king that he has set over his people. And so each of these kings had the title of God's anointed. They were all entitled Messiah. They were all entitled Deliverer. Yet as we know, none of them truly, fully delivered upon that title. So in the near sense, you have David and his line of kings, human kings. But now in the far sense, as is pretty clear, even just from the text, it just jumps out from you, that it is Jesus Christ. So in the far sense, the Lord's anointed here is Jesus Christ. And there's an, a kind of, there's an intermediate fulfillment in, the, in that, in his first coming. And then there's a final fulfillment in his second coming. Because you, you see there's, uh, you, you look at this psalm, you see how, okay, yeah, there's, this was fulfilled when he came the first time. We see in Acts chapter 4 later. And then you also see, this is, this is talking about some, Day of the Lord, Revelation 19, craziness. <laughs> okay, pretty intense. Uh, so, so, so that's, it's awesome, right? This psalm these speaks ancient words that reverberates across generations, even down to the final days and the day of the Lord. These days that are yet to come. So, now, if you look at this psalm altogether as a whole, if you look at the layout, how many sections are here in this psalm? How many sections do the Bibles show? There are four sections, right? So it's broken up into four stanzas, okay? So you have four stanzas in, in this song, and these four stanzas will become our outline for tonight. So if you want an outline, we have um, verses 1 to 3 is the presumptuous rebellion. The presumptuous rebellion. And you might see a break in your Bibles, right? You see a space between verses 3 and 4, 6 and 7, 9 and 10, right? So first we have the presumptuous rebellion, 1 to 3. And then the unimpressed sovereign, verses 4 through 6. The unimpressed sovereign. Third, the prevailing reign of the Son King. Verses 7 through 9. The prevailing reign of the Son King. Son, S-O-N, Son, right? And lastly, the urgent invitation. Verses 10 through 12. The urgent invitation. So let's jump right in. First, the presumptuous rebellion, verses 1 through 3. 
Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So what's, a, what's this a picture of? This is a picture of insurrection. This is a picture of rebellion, anarchy, and hostility. Right? That word for uproar in the Hebrew, it's, it's like ragash. Right? It's rage. Right? It's, it's a loud rage, a tumult. In the New Testament Greek version of the word, it's a rage of pride and restlessness. So it's, it's like a raging sea in a storm, right? A sea that is just raging and its waters swell up and rise with pride and the sea rolls and the sea roars and it rages with waves crashing to and fro. So that's kind of, that's kind of the picture when you have that word uproar. Why are the nations in this raging uproar? And the word for nations is literally every nation. So it's not just plural. It's comprehensive, okay? This is every nation. And the peoples, it's the people groups. This is all the peoples. This is the ethnos in the New Testament, right, in the Greek. It's the every nation, tribe, and tongue, right, all the earth. So here we have Every nation, everywhere, okay? This is all the peoples in every place in this upheaval, in this uproar. So this is a universal uprising. This is a global insurrection. This is pandemic. It's a worldwide tsunami event of hostile, belligerent animosity. All the peoples of the earth have risen up in brazen defiance against God. But they rise up in vain. Right? Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising what? A vain thing. So the nations, the peoples, they plot in vain. That word for vain is it's the Hebrew word for empty, right? Empty. Cup, you know, if you want to pour water, oh, empty. It's, it's vain. They strive emptily. All this rage, pandemic as it is, it, it, it's, it's a strange sight because here we see the created has taken up arms to defy the creator. This is it's vanity, it's madness, right? Let's look at verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So now the kings and rulers take their stand, right? They, they take counsel together. So spearheaded by their rulers and leaders, mankind bands together as a worldwide 
mob in defiance against God. Right? They, they take counsel together. Together, they think, oh, we are stronger together. Okay? Maybe if we collect our forces in a, in a multinational unified alliance against God, we'll have a, a pretty good chance at prevailing against him. Right? Look at all our chariots. Look at all our horses and battle array. Look at all our banners and shields and swords. Our armies across the land are like the sand across the seashore. Yet this is all folly because they are plotting a vain thing. Right? This human strategy of using human alliances, right, as a battle tactic. It, it's, it's absurd in the divine theater of war, right? One word, a single word out of the mouth of the eternal word. They would all cease to exist. Right? Colossians talks about for by him and through him, he created the world and all things. The Son of God brought all things into existence out of nothing, ex nihilo. And with a word, he could reduce it all again to nothing. I mean, you can, you can only imagine Jesus responding in holy vengeance, right? Like, oh, where two or three or seven billion are gathered against my name, there I will be in the midst of them. Right? And you have this picture, like just, like you picture Samson standing in the field among the bodies of the dead Philistines with a donkey's jawbone in his hand dripping with the blood of Israel's enemies. And yet now one who is greater than Samson is here. Actually, we'll talk a lot about Samson later in Judges. Um, but back to our passage. <clears throat> Verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and his anointed. And with their hearts swelling with pride, they shout among themselves, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us tear apart their fetters, their bindings, shackles, these, their ropes, their restrictions, and cast them away from us. Let us do away with his decrees and commands. Let us rid ourselves of his precepts and ordinances. Let us be free to live as we please. To commit all manner of sin and immorality and evil. Whatever our hearts desire. Let us dethrone this God over us. Let us be to ourselves our own gods. Let us tear their fetters apart, for we are self-determinative. We 
are the final word. We are the final arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. Let us take of the fruit of the tree, for it is a delight to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. Let us make brick. Let us build a city and a tower that reaches into the heavens. Come, let us make for ourselves a name. Let us forsake Yahweh and return to Egypt. Let us forsake the house in the line of David, the Lord's anointed. Away to your tents, O Israel. Let us forsake the Lord, forsake the God of Elijah, and let us return to the Baals. Let us forsake the Shema and do away with instructing our children to love Yahweh with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But let, her, let us slaughter our children and offer them up in flames to Moloch. Let us crucify this Galilean who claims to be the king of the Jews. Let us crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Let us cast their cords from us and we will go our own way. See, this presumptuous rebellion is intrinsic to mankind. It is ancient and it is pervasive. And all of our history testifies to that fact. From the fall to the flood to the first coming of Christ and to the final day of the Lord that is to come. are no stranger to it in this day, but we live in it. We live in this atmosphere today. Every day we are surrounded by these tumultuous seas as the uproar of the peoples rises and rages all around us in stiff-necked opposition to God. You look out there across the land and the world that we live in, you see that immorality has become the new morality. The sexual dysphoria and transgender upheaval we are witnessing in these times will put Sodom to shame. And what we are seeing in today's culture is symptomatic of a deeper and more abominable sin. The root sin, which is the rejection of God as king. It is the rejection of God's authority. You know, speaking about the sexual dysphoria 
confusion, revolution, whatever they're calling it. These men and women, male and female, are, are rejecting God's design for who he made them to be. They bear the image of God. And they're attempting to alter their God-given identity. And they're trying to do it at the deepest level that they can imagine. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another. Romans 1. God's design for mankind, for men, for women. God's fetters for mankind as male and female are no longer in vogue. But what is in vogue now? Non-binary gender identification, partial birth abortion, rampant sexual immorality, promiscuity, fornication, and the sexual objectification of women and men and children. God's offer of salvation through the narrow gate of Jesus Christ is disdained and it is denounced as taboo. Oh no, you can't talk about that. The word of God is censured and condemned. God is vilified. God is now on trial and God must now give an account. It's no longer sinners in the hands of an angry God, but it is God in the hands of angry sin. Now, what is God's response to all this belligerence, this aggression? What is his response to this uproar? not impressed. <clears throat> Verses 4 to 6, the unimpressed sovereign. <clears throat> the unimpressed sovereign. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. He who sits in the heavens, he's not standing up. He's not pacing about in a frenzy, in a nervous panic, right? Like, oh no, the, the nations have gathered together the the peoples have banded together in defiance against me. You know, he's not calling up his archangels, you know, to start mobilizing the legions of angels. Like, Michael, we have a DEFCON 1, right? <laughs> like, they, they, no, the peoples are raging, right? 
the, the, the people that are raging, the raging seas of this uproar, this tumult. God isn't gathering up sandbags and laying them down at the doorway of heaven. Right? Rather, God is sitting on his throne, unimpressed, unperturbed. He is presiding from his throne just as he was before the nations were raging. Just as he was before those nations existed. He is presiding on his throne just as he was in eternity past. Before Genesis 1.1. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, Psalm 115.3. Thy foes in vain designs engage. Against thy throne in vain they rage. Like rising waves with angry roar that dash, then die upon the shore. The all-sovereign God is unimpressed. But he is not unamused. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. These measly little humans that he created out of the dust are banding together to raise their puny little fists up at him. It's like, a, like an angry little flea circus. This is very cute. <laughs> wait, wait, shh, wait. I think the ants have something to say, right? God laughs at this absurdity. I mean, this is a bad joke. Isaiah 40 says, these nations are but a drop in the bucket to God. They are nothing but dust on the scales. They don't hold any weight. Dust on the scales. Right. Yet seemingly insignificant, or insignificant as they are, their pint-sized rebellion is still a monumental offense against the holiness of God. Their pint-sized rebellion is still a monumental offense against the transcendent dignity of the Son of God, the Lord's anointed. And therefore, he speaks to them out of the whirlwind of his anger. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. O nations, you can rage, you can conspire, you can rally together all you want. Your uproar 
Their presumptuous rebellion is moot. For I have installed my king. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Zion, Jerusalem. The place from which the line of David, these Davidic messianic kings would rule. And now, at last, the anointed one, the son king, the Messiah from God, the eternal word himself opens his mouth. Verse 7. This is the prevailing reign of the son king, verses 7 through 9. The prevailing reign of the son king. So we've seen, we've seen the uh, pretentious rebellion. And the unimpressed sovereign, and now the prevailing reign of the Son King. Messiah speaks, I will surely tell of the the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth as your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So here, the anointed of God pretty much lets us in on the conversation, the intra-Trinitarian conversation between uh, God the Father and God the Son. He says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You are my son. Does that sound familiar? Where else have we heard that before? Uh, Pastor Henry preached on this recently in Luke. Um, As Jesus was being baptized by John, the heavens opened, right? And the Spirit, Holy Spirit descended upon him um, like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, from God the Father, to his son. You are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the Father's reaffirmation and the Father's encouragement. As he put strength under the wings of his son, as his son was about to embark upon the beginning of his earthly ministry. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now some might get sidetracked by this, thinking, okay, so well, this is an interpretive challenge. What, what is, what are you saying? Today I have begotten you. Is it saying that, okay, on this day Jesus is created? Or, or became a son. This day he was born. Um, but we understand that that's, that's not what the verse is saying. It's not that the son did not previously exist. Um, but the New Testament sheds light on this. Actually, if you want to jot down Acts 13, 13. Um, it talks about how Jesus' sonship was publicly declared with power 
and affirmed at his resurrection. So you had him at his baptism where God you know, uh, proclaims, you are my son, and you I am well, in whom I am well pleased. So it's understood that he is the son of God, but it's kind of like, well, prove it. So it was then after the resurrection that he was publicly declared with power that this indeed is the son of God. We understand the Son, co-eternal and co-equal with the Father, for he was in the beginning with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. It's just a little, you know, wow, it's just a little illustration that the Father uses here. But it is horrific because there is a sense of finality in the shattering of earthenware, the shattering of pottery. He's talking about the nations, these, these defiant peoples. They're like fragile pottery. And they're shattered into a million pieces. There is no putting it back together. There is no restoration. There's no second life for that clay vessel. So just as a delicate ceramic vase will not survive a rod of iron, so the helpless rebel will not stand before the Son of Man. I remember that picture of Samson standing with the jawbone over the slain Philistines. You think of uh, Isaiah 63, Jesus, uh, <laughs> P.H., preached on this. Like, who is this one who comes from Edom, from Basra? His robes dipped in. And crimson, crimson-stained garments in Revelation 19. And I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. So when the Father is talking about how the Son is going to shatter them, like earthenware. He's looking forward to Revelations 19. Who can stand? I wonder who can stand. And yet, 
where this psalm takes a turn. But here the mercy of God in the gospel shines through with radiant hope. Verse 10, the urgent invitation. The urgent invitation. Verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. You can hear, you can just hear the pleading that the psalmist in the psalmist's voice. Now therefore, O kings, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. Show discernment. <coughs> Literally, be wise, O kings. Be wise for men will obey God willingly or unwillingly. Therefore, be wise. Take refuge while there is still time. Worship the Lord with reverence. Do homage to the sun. Kiss the sun. That he not become angry and you perish. So that picture is of 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 the conquered subjects, how the conquered or even the conquered king will bow and kiss the hand or kiss the feet of the victorious king. It was a sign of submission. It was a sign acknowledging that victorious king's mercy for allowing you to live. So show discernment, be wise, O king, humble yourselves. Before the king of kings. Bow before the sun. Lest you perish in the way. For the fate of all the rebels has already been declared. The writing is on the wall. All the disobedient, all the rebels will be dashed to pieces. Don't be mistaken. You think there's safety in your numbers banding together. You think there's safety in numbers. You think, okay, it's just going to be a big party in hell. If everyone else is going to hell, then it might not be too bad if I'm there too. It's not going to be one big party. You, know, you think of the Titanic sinking as the stern of the Titanic swung up for the last time, going down. Do you think any of those ill-fated passengers found any comfort in knowing there were others with them about to be plunged into the black, icy depths? Be wise, O kings. Come, flee the wrath that is to come. 
take refuge while there is still time. R.C. Spohr writes, we live in an era of divine patience when God is holding back his wrath so that many may be saved. But make no mistake, this patience is not eternal. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, will execute his wrath at the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is the day of wrath. For any who do not have Christ, any who are not found refuge in the lifeboat of Jesus Christ, I plead with you to come. Boast not for tomorrow, for you do not know what a day will bring, Proverbs 27. O kings, be wise. Bow to the sun, lest you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. His wrath may soon be kindled. It's not that he has a bad temper, but he has stored up that wrath. And that day of wrath will come like a thief in the night. He ends with his word of hope. How blessed, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. That blessed is, is in the plural. How blessed upon blessed upon blessed. This is blessings multiplied. Blessing as far and as long as the eye can see. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. All who take refuge in him. What are we taking refuge from? What are we being saved from? The biggest threat, the biggest danger, the biggest fear of our soul is God. We are being saved. We need to be saved from God. And the only one who can save from God, the only one who can deliver from God is God. Paul says, there is one God and one what? One mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ. So if you have not, you need to 
come to Jesus. Worship the Lord with reverence. Bow, kiss the Son. For blessed are all who take refuge in him. Holy Week is coming up. I want you guys to turn to Acts 4. Um, please turn with me to Acts 4. So we, we want to look at this far fulfillment, this far sense of this song. Because the New Testament lays it out for us clearly. If you found your way to Acts chapter 4, I want to read from 24 to 28. So when they heard this, this is the early church, when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? Verse 26. The kings of the earth took their stand. And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Do you see that? That's awesome. I'm going to read 27 to 28 again. For truly in this city... Here in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, the anointed of God, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, all banded together, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The rulers have taken counsel together. Rome, Pilate, Herod. Against the Lord and against his anointed. I mean, Satan himself and his demons. Unleashing everything he could at Jesus. With brokenhearted betrayal, with the scourging, the humiliation and crown of thorns, the physical anguish. And even tempting him to come off the cross with the crowds jeering and mocking him. You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from that cross. He saved others, he can't save himself. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. And as Jesus hung there, 
It may have seemed to them that they had won. This must be game over for the king of the Jews. And as Jesus hung there, he's struggling for each breath. He was naked. He was taunted. He was ridiculed by the crowd. He was mocked and spit upon. His body was frail and weak. They mocked him constantly. Just a week earlier on Sunday, they shouted, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. The Messiah is here. And yet as the week progressed, their unbelief shone through. This is not the Messiah we wanted. Where is the Messiah of Revelation 19? Where is the new Samson? Where is the deliverer who will vanquish and crush our enemies? We reject this king. The son of David. We want nothing to do with him. Give us Barabbas. As for this Jesus, crucify him. And as Jesus hung there, frail and weak, the skin of his back lacerated to shreds, blood trickling down his bruised and beaten and swollen face. In the eyes of man, this is a humiliating defeat. In the eyes of man, the uproar of the nations and the raging of the peoples has prevailed. There's no coming back from this for Jesus of Galilee. This remnant of a man on a cross. Covered in shame. Because man has a Herculean picture of their heroes. They want to see their heroes strong and conquering, standing tall, high and mighty. Not this. Not this naked man on a cross. In God's eyes, his son dying on the cross. This is the ultimate triumph. The foolishness of the cross, the wisdom of God. The foolishness of the gospel. You see, in this apparent shame, in this apparent destruction of the Son of God, the glory 
the weight and worth and power of the Son of God is revealed. Like Atlas bearing the weights of the world on his shoulders, the Christ does not break as the torrents of the Father's wrath surges down upon him. The Messiah endures like an Olympic weightlifting champion, arms outstretched, bearing up under the crushing load until that buzzer sounds. And with a triumphant shout, it is finished. Tetelestai, paid in full. And of his own will, not the will of man. The sin-bearing champion lays down his life, breathing his last, victorious, having put his heel on the neck of the ancient mortal enemy of mankind. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Hebrews 2. When all the forces of evil had thought they won. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Oh, the sovereignty of God, the Lord Adonai, the mighty Lord of Lords. where all the forces rallying against him and against his anointed, against his son, they were all pawns in his hands. They are his agents, his servants, to accomplish his will. same could be said of your life, your suffering, your trials, your struggles, your pain, your discouragement, your failures, they are not without meaning, they are not insignificant, every trial, every anguish, every scourging is a pawn in the Father's hands on your road to glory. See, God has a plan in view, a trajectory for the glory of his Son, 
his anointed, his Messiah. He has it an end game in view. And part of this plan is the joy and the blessing of all who find refuge in him. So take heart as you endure this life, as you war with sin, you war with your flesh, and you seek to live for God. You find joy in the Messiah and comfort in the invincible plan of God. That you can say on Sunday with full joy and conviction, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God, we thank you, Lord such a marvelous and glorious future that you have planned for your king your son and all your sons and daughters that he has purchased and he has won by his cross God, I pray that you lift us up out of the humdrum of our distracted lives. Help us see the glory that awaits. God, put a fire in us to know what we're living for. all the while trusting that we have found refuge in your son, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that he has come to join with us and we have walked into eternal life with him, into fellowship with him, both now and forevermore. Lord, we praise you for this hope and we thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.